Finding Home is a podcast series presented by the Irish American Archive Society. The Society is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to research, present, and preserve information about the history of the Irish in Cleveland. Thank you for listening, and please enjoy. Greetings. I'm Margaret Lynch of the Irish American Archives Society. Welcome to our podcast series, Finding Home. This is our 49th episode. With the 1950s and 1960s immigrants, we're catching up with people who are still alive. Next episode, I'm going to discuss some overall trends in the Irish-American community since the 1950s and 60s. Then I'm going to take a break for about a month to map out a second podcast series with a different approach. Before we leave the 1950s and 1960s, however, I'd like to share some of my own memories of Cleveland's Irish community during those decades. Those were my growing up years. I've mentioned family stories from time to time during this podcast series when I thought my family experience might be representative, and I offer these memories in the same spirit. My memories aren't all-inclusive. My family was involved with the Hibernians and Irish dancing. I want to pay tribute, though, to the folks who sustained those activities during my youth. Three out of four of my grandparents were born in Ireland, and my fourth grandparent, my dad's mother, was born in the Irish enclave of the Angle in Cleveland. Both sides of my dad's family came from Ackle Island. Those were the Lynches, whose name was Lynchahan in Ackle, and several Gallagher lines. My mom's parents came from Belmullet and from outside Kalchama, both in County Mayo. When I look at my extended family history, many of the major immigration waves to Cleveland are represented. Some Lynches and Gallaghers came to Cleveland in the 1830s during the Canal era but the 1839 bank panic and a typhoid epidemic sent them back to Ireland. More Lynches and Gallaghers came in the 1860s Ackle Wave. A three-times great-grandfather was buried in St. John's Cemetery in 1868. Some Lynches and Gallagher-related McManamans came on the Took-assisted emigration scheme in the early 1880s. On my mom's side, Gibbons, Egan, and McDonald family members came one by one in the 1890s and early 1900s and went for the most part into domestic service. The 1920s brought more Lynches and Gallaghers and my mom's mom. I don't have any famine immigrant ancestors or close relatives in the 1950s and 1960s cohort. My Lynch grandparents were Hibernians. The names of several lynches can be found on old Hibernian membership rosters from the 1880s, so the Hibernian Association was long-standing. My grandfather died in 1962 when I was 10. I remember my grandmother's involvement with the Ladies' Auxiliary more vividly. The Hibernians put on an annual St. Patrick's Day banquet, usually with Congressman Michael Fian as keynote speaker. They held card parties and sometimes co-sponsored dances to raise money for Irish missionary priests and for Father Patrick Payton, promoter of the family rosary. Lots of strong-minded women were involved in the LAAOH. They operated in small divisions, and the divisions sent representatives to a county board. My grandmother, Beatrice Gallagher Lynch, and her friend, Mary Barry Reynolds, were in the same division, and they were always allies. Mary O'Leary, Dee Schofield, and Rita Gallagher were a few of the forceful leaders from the other divisions. The county board meetings sometimes involved fierce disagreements, but the women usually came together in the belief that they were better organized than the men. My grandmother didn't drive, and neither did some of her friends. 
my mom got involved in the Hibernians to help my grandmother out with transportation. We often gave rides to kindly Mary Ryan, who wore a big fur coat and sometimes brought along her boarder, Tom Reynolds, and also to Agnes Chambers, friendly matriarch of the Chambers Funeral Home family. We helped my grandmother set up card parties, often in the old Cadell House in Detroit. We put up and took down folding tables and chairs. On each table, we placed a deck of cards, a pad of paper, and small, sharpened pencils. We also helped out at nationality fairs, where we manned tables with soda breads. In the early 1960s, there was an attempt to form a junior Hibernians group. The Hibernians didn't have marching units like the Westside IA Club did. My father proudly recalled marching with the Westside Fife and Drums Corps as a child, but my siblings and I had only attended the parade as spectators. My mom's brother marched with the policemen every year, and when my uncle Tom Gibbons passed by, we shouted up Kulchama in honor of my other grandmother. As junior Hibernians, we now became involved with the parade. We decorated floats, twisting tissue paper into flowers and tying those tissue paper flowers to chicken wire. One year, we washed and collected concentrated juice cans, painting them white, and we strung rope through the cans to make a gigantic set of rosary beads. Some of us got to march in the parade as a living rosary. Draped in white sheets, we held up those painted juice can beads. I was chosen to march, along with my friend Eileen Reynolds, later Wallenhorst. Her parents, Jim and Mary Reynolds, were my grandmother's friends. Eileen and I would later attend St. Joseph Academy together. Eileen would go on to become an LAOH state president, just like her mother had been. In my memory, it's hard to separate my grandmother's involvement with Hibernians from her involvement with Democratic Party politics. Some of the same people were active in both, especially Mary Ellen Murphy. Mary Ellen was an Eastside Hibernian and cultural garden fundraiser, but she also worked at the County Board of Elections. My Grandma Lynch was a poll worker, a precinct committee woman, and Ward 1 club leader. She took over from my grandfather, James Lynch, who took over from his older brothers, Michael and Thomas, each in turn, in a decades-long Lynch family tradition. We brought my grandmother to political events. She was known for delivering her precinct, and candidates always sought her out. Some of the card parties at the Cadell Recreation Center were probably Democratic Party fundraisers. Picnics at Euclid Beach Park also could have been Irish or Democratic. Irish picnics and dances loomed large in my family mythology. My parents met at an Irish picnic. So did my great-aunt and her husband. My mom's parents met at an Irish dance. But the Democratic Party also held steer roasts and clam bakes at Euclid Beach, and we attended those too. JFK spoke at one. I remember how excited everyone was to see him and hear his distinctive Boston accent. Our parishes reinforced our Irish identity. My mom, Margaret Gibbons, was from the east side, St. Joseph's Parish in Collinwood. It wasn't a particularly Irish parish, but the Irish families found each other. My father, Thomas Lynch, was a Westsider. He was baptized at St. Patrick's on Bridge, the mother parish for the Irish, but grew up in St. Ignatius Parish at West 102nd in Lorraine. St. Ignatius was a large multi-ethnic parish, but had a large and strong Irish contingent. I was born and baptized in St. Aloysius Parish on the east side. 
We moved in about 1956 to a fairly new post-war subdivision in a West Park neighborhood off Triscuit Road. Our small parish was named after St. Mel, the little-known nephew of St. Patrick. Despite our parish name, it wasn't primarily an Irish neighborhood, though there was an Irish presence. Our pastor, Monsignor Louis Wolf, was German. He didn't allow scout troops because the scouts reminded him of the Hitler Youth. We had assistants with Irish names. Egan and Shaughnessy were a couple of them. But Father Tom Flynn made the greatest impact on the Irish-American families in the parish. My mother's family had known Father Flynn. He had also grown up in Collinwood. His cousins ran around with my uncles, and the future Father Flynn always wanted to be a priest, but he loved to dance. So did my aunt, Patricia Gibbons Monroe. Both had learned Irish dancing from fiddler and dancing teacher Tom Scott. My aunt had been Father Flynn's safe date at high school dances. Father Flynn launched an annual St. Patrick's Day show at our grade school, St. Mel's. Each grade had to learn and perform an Irish-American song. He put the idea out that anyone who took Irish dancing lessons would be invited to perform Irish dances at these shows as well. Father Flynn knew that Tessie Scott Burke had begun offering lessons at the old IA club on Madison Avenue. Several families were interested. Our family, the Kavanaugh's, the Mangans, a couple of Gorman families, and many others. Our mother set up carpools. Judy Bunsey, who wasn't Irish at all, would excel at dancing and marry a championship dancer named P.J. McCafferty. Still to this day, Judy and P.J. are both teachers and adjudicators of Irish dancing. At dancing, we intersected with other familiar families. Kilbanes, Campbells, Roddies, McCafferty's, Grady's, Neforas, two different Murray families, my Barry and Rooney cousins. As I mentioned, my aunt had taken dancing lessons from Tessie's father. My mom was also supposed to take lessons, but Tom Scott, in his blunt way, told my grandfather to save his money on that one, my mother. Although my mom never did learn to dance, she was to spend decades of her life accompanying other people to dancing lessons with Tessie, her sister Pat, her children, and her grandchildren. At the IA Hall, Tessie's stepmother Lillian sat at a card table by the door to collect money for lessons. Tessie's stepsister Betty, a teenager then, helped to teach, but would soon form her own school. Sometimes Tessie's father Tom would stop by with his fiddle and we would dance to his playing. Otherwise, Tessie lugged around stacks of records and a portable record player. Since families with kids of different ages attended, we usually spent hours at the IA Hall every Saturday. Large, painted murals of Irish scenes rimmed the hall. Wooden, pew-like benches ran down each side of the dance floor with a small stage at the head of the hall. Tessie was a stern taskmaster on the dance floor, but when we weren't learning our steps, we ran around the hall in and out of the small upstairs rooms. We were lucky that no one fell out the windows that overlooked the dance floor. We snuck out to a corner store to buy penny candy. We were supposed to stay out of the bar in the back. When Pat Lynch was in a good mood, the tall, imposing IA president might allow us a glass of water or even a pop at the bar. Otherwise, he would growl members only and chew us back into the dance hall. He grilled everyone on who our parents and grandparents were, and he knew if they were current with their IA dues. My parents and grandparents were Hibernians, not IA members. He seemed disapproving, even though he was distantly related to my grandfather. 
The Pete Kilbane family had a new baby one year. Everyone called her Nunu, though her name was Mary Agnes. When she was about two years old, Mary Agnes taught herself how to dance on the sidelines. I remember saying one day to Tessie, Look, Tessie, Nunu can do her sevens. Mary Agnes went on to become a world-qualifying championship dancer. Many years later, we both brought our children to Irish dancing with Tessie. My mom used to help Tessie with dance-outs. Our premier dance-out event in those days was at the Irish Cultural Garden. Betty Murphy, a bustling Eastside Hibernian, was in charge, and Judge John V. Corgan was usually the speaker. When my own kids were in dancing, I helped Tessie as well, along with Mary Agnes Kilbane Barrett, Eileen Mangan-Stull, and others who had danced with my younger sisters, such as Katie Murray, Patty McGuire-Kessler, Cheryl Zopa-Ginnabaugh, and the Stroh sisters. The first Cleveland Fesher dancing competition took place in 1958. Feshes also sprang up in Akron, Detroit, and Pittsburgh. My family only went to one or two Feshes a year. Later, with my own daughters, we would travel across North America for local, regional, and national competitions, and to worlds in Ireland and Scotland. The Cleveland Fesh in the 1960s took place at the Berea Fairgrounds. The fairgrounds were hot and dusty, and shade was scarce. Our earliest costumes were wool. Individual dances were done first, from beginners through champions, and group dances were done at the end of the day. That left hours for beginners and novices to run around, play in the dirt, and get sunburned before they had to return for their group dances. But we could also watch the championship dancers perform. I remember Tom Hastings, Bobby Masterson, Sheila Murphy Crawford, and Midge Ginley Gannon. Bobby and Sheila would soon start their own schools. Tessie's father played at the Feshes along with Tom McCaffrey, Al O'Leary, and others. Fathers that we knew, Gus Boland, Owen Quinn, and Jack Kilbane, or grandfathers like Art McChrystal, were announcers or put up and tore down the stages. We attended dances at the IA, large fundraisers with big-name bands, and Kaylee dances with a few familiar local musicians. At one big event, Tom Hastings, in wool jacket, cape, and kilt, performed a hard shoe dance called The King of the Fairies, a haunting hornpipe tune. I told myself that I would stay in dancing long enough to learn that set, and I did. After I stopped taking dancing, my younger siblings continued. Through high school and college, we went to Kaylee dances at the old IA that were organized by the Gaelic Society. I sometimes brought long-haired college friends with me, dressed in torn blue jeans and combat boots with no dance experience at all. The Gaelic Society stalwarts seemed torn. They wanted younger people to learn the social dances, but they also looked forward to a night of dancing with people of their own skill level, which did not include my crew. Some of the Cayley regulars were parents we knew from dancing. Owen and Ann Quinn and John and Eileen Lackey were a particular pleasure to watch as they skimmed the floor. And there were others as well. Nell Buckley, Noreen Hastings, Joan Rialli, and Kathleen Sheehan, to name a few. Their love of Irish music and dance was infectious. It's taken all the folks I've named today, and many more, to sustain our shared heritage. I'm so very grateful to them, and also grateful that I could share these traditions with my siblings, childhood friends, my own children, and with you today. Thanks for listening. I'm Margaret Lynch, and I hope you have a great day. You've been listening to Finding Home a podcast series presented by the Irish American Archive Society of Cleveland. 
Find out more about the Society or get in touch at irisharchives.org.